This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Welcome to the club. Last time in chapter 13, Saul began to fall out of favor with God. The Philistines are threatening to attack and Saul just panics. He was told to wait for Samuel and God's blessing before he attacked. But Saul could not wait, and he impulsively offered sacrifices to God without Samuel. His actions revealed his heart, and the results were disastrous. Because Saul did not keep the Lord's command, his kingdom would not endure, and God would choose a man with a heart for God to replace him. In chapter 14, then, Saul's foolish leadership begins to negatively affect all of Israel. In an attempt to appease God, Saul orders the army to fast, while Jonathan unknowingly breaks that order. And then the starving army in desperation breaks the fast, and even worse, wolves down their meat with the blood still in it, which was a very bad sin. It's a violation of God's commands. Saul then atones for his men's sin with a sacrifice to God, but he decrees that his son, Jonathan, must die. The people think this is foolish and they rescue Jonathan. First, Saul lost the favor of God and now he has lost the respect of his people. Okay, so here's our setup for this episode. Even though Saul's been told that his descendants will not be king and that God has chosen another man to replace him, that person hasn't been revealed. And so Saul is still the acting king which leaves the door open for Saul to redeem himself in some way in whatever days he has left. Now, an opportunity to find favor with the Lord arrives in the form of an order from Samuel to destroy the Amalekites. Can Saul do the right thing? Scene one, Saul gets a chance to obey chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. God's commanding here a holy war, a harem, and we've encountered this type of war multiple times in our journey through the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Joshua. Harem means dedicated in Hebrew. In the extreme form of harem warfare, like at Jericho, harem referred to the total destruction of a city, including its inhabitants, livestock, and possessions. Everything destroyed was dedicated or consecrated to God. Now, God usually commanded complete harem when the city and its inhabitants were devoted to vile idolatry, which was a significant spiritual threat to the Israelites. This idolatry was bad. It often included child sacrifice and temple prostitution. Now, God had other reasons for wanting to destroy the Amalekites on top of their idolatry. The Amalekites have a history with the Israelites and are depicted as a terrorist nation. They were the first people to oppose the Israelites after they left Egypt in that famous battle that was won because Aaron and Hur held Moses's hands up in the air. Because of the way the Amalekites attacked the Israelites, 
God promised that he would be at war with them and completely blot them out way back in Exodus 17. Exodus 17, starting in verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of a hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So go back to Exodus season two and listen to more of the beginning of a lot of enemies. The Amalekites' final destruction will not occur here in this episode, but eventually under King Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4. So what God promised will happen. Now back to our story in 1 Samuel chapter 15, continuing in verse four. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Helva to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Why would Saul disobey? There could be several reasons. The most obvious is agreed. He kept the best of everything that was good. But why spare King Agag? Well, no one knows for sure, but there, of course, is lots of speculation. Most likely, Saul wanted to show off his pride. He had the king. It was a common practice in Canaan at the time for the victor to enjoy the glory of displaying his fallen captive to the people as proof of his great conquest. Now, another thought, which is even worse, another motive, it is possible that Saul was tempted to learn from Agag more about the Amalekites' wicked idolatry, particularly those things like, you know, temple prostitution, pleasure. It's all about pleasure. Saul, the bottom line is Saul is, his heart is rapidly being revealed. And we already knew that because God already told him that Mm -hmm. his heart wasn't in the right place, but here's further proof. Yeah. And continuing in verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel had a right to be mad, mad at Israel for wanting a king and mad at Saul for being such a foolish king. Samuel had done everything he could to prevent this failure. He had warned Israel what would happen if they got a king in chapter eight, but the people didn't listen. He told them that kings were greedy. And here is Saul acting greedy. They would take, take, take. Remember that? Poor 
Samuel. He probably never dreamed that it would begin to happen so fast and under his very eyes as a spiritual leader. And Samuel had given Saul very explicit instructions for the defeat of the Amalekites. So there's no reason he should have disobeyed. Saul just didn't listen. Samuel told Saul he must destroy everything. How could Saul be so flagrantly foolish? Poor Samuel again. He probably felt so frustrated and ineffective. Nobody listens to him. What more could he have done? Like Moses before him and many of the prophets after him, Samuel will have to deal with the painful reality of constantly confronting Israel's sin and delivering God's justice. One has to wonder how Jesus feels when we act like Saul in foolish disobedience. Does Jesus feel the same angry frustration and painful grief? Because really, even more so than Samuel, Jesus did everything he could do for us. He literally gave his life. All right, scene two. Saul makes excuses for falling short and ugh, so convicting, don't we all? This scene sounds so much like dozens of scenes that have played out in my very own kitchen. It's that scene where, you know, a mom reveals to a child that they have been caught in something and the child squirms with a stream of foolish excuses until the mom finally says, enough. If you know, you know. And if you're a mom, you know. Well, Samuel's going to say enough too. So there you go. <laughs> Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Okay, so I picture this scene like, um, you know, Samuel walks up and he's kind of mad and Saul is on this high like, hey, dude, the Lord bless you. This is great. We won. When in fact, Saul is doomed. He does not have a heart for the Lord and his success has gone right to his head. Saul has even set up a monument in his own honor. He is high on pride. The situation is so deplorable that God regrets that he ever made him king. Saul uses three tactics to defend himself when Samuel comes at him. He uses blame, justification, and minimizing the seriousness of the situation. First, Saul tries to blame the soldiers did it. It's like we're back in Genesis in season one. Adam said Eve made him do it. It was the snake. I know, exactly. Eve said the serpent made her do it. We see this pattern over and over. God keeps trying to teach us this lesson about choices. Now, so you won't forget, as Saul did, we created a chart way back in season one. It's called the path to good or evil. And we'll put it in the show notes again. It diagrams how God's word and warnings lead us down a good path and how the enemy tempts us off the good path to the path of evil. This is Saul's situation. He was set on a good path by Samuel, but he has been tempted and he is way off the path now. Now the path is so simple, so clear, and yet throughout humanity, the tendency is to choose the wrong path, the path to evil, like Saul. 
The crazy thing is that at any point, we can repent and get back on the path to good. It's just that easy, but it takes humility. Saul had that choice right here and failed to turn. He could have confessed rather than blame. And this is the difference between he and David will find. Now, second, Saul tries to justify the sheep and cattle that he kept when he shouldn't have kept them, were going to be used to sacrifice to God, he says. Continuing in verse 16, Enough, Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become a head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But, but, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned to me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Did you hear, Saul? The third thing he does is he tries to minimize the seriousness of the situation. He says he completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought Agag and plunder back. How, those two things can't even go together. It doesn't make sense. How could it be complete if Agag is standing there? The bottom line is that there is no excuse for sin. And when we attempt to make an excuse, we sound childishly foolish, like that child squirming in your kitchen. Saul sounded ridiculous. He had greeted Samuel exuberantly with the words, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He's acting as if nothing is wrong. Now, the enemy's MO is simple. He loves nothing more than to tempt us to sin by convincing us that we aren't even sinning. Remember how the serpent convinced Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Can't you hear the serpent right here using the same tactics with Saul? Did Samuel really say God wants you to kill all the Amalekites and cattle? And Saul would respond to the serpent, hmm, well, what if I kept some sheep to sacrifice to God? Because, you know, all these sacrifices to God are so costly. Why waste these really good animals? I think God will like them. And the serpent would have replied, great idea. God will be so pleased that you thought of him. And by the way, before you kill that king, Agag, you really should pick his brain because he has some excellent ideas on how you can improve your kingship and probably enjoy it a lot more. If you catch my meaning, perhaps Agag could explain how adding a few temple prostitutes might spice it up a bit. The lesson for us is this. The enemy's crafty. And he tries to get in your head all the time. And entertaining any thought of altering God's truth will always lead to sin. Well, Samuel's head 
is very clear, and he's not having any of Saul's excuses. Verse 22, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Okay. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Well, we know what it means to sacrifice if you've been with us um, through Leviticus season three, but how does that translate for us today? We don't offer sacrifices anymore. Well, let's look at it this way. To obey is better than to serve if we are serving for the wrong reasons. To obey is better than to give if we are giving for the wrong reasons. To obey is better than to attend church if we are attending church for the wrong reasons. All of these things are good. But for example, if we attend church on Sunday and disobey God all week, how can God be pleased with that? Because God sees the heart. He knows if we are attending church out of love for Him or to look good for others. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now, I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. So Saul is having a hard time moving Samuel. Samuel is firm and lecturing him, and Saul starts to panic. He can't lose Samuel. Samuel is his tie to God, and Samuel is very respected by the people. If he loses Samuel, he's going to start to slip in the people's eyes. So he capitulates in desperation. I sinned. Okay, okay, okay. I was wrong. I beg you, just come back with me so I can worship. The problem is that Saul doesn't want to worship because he loves God. Saul wants to worship so he looks good for the people. And Saul's next words reveal that he wants to use God for his own success. Saul loves Saul, and his motivation for all he does is selfish. The question for us is this, are you going through the motions of worship out of a heart for the Lord or just to look good? Because no involvement in Christian good deeds will atone for a heart that is motivated by self and not love for the Lord. Continuing in verse 26, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind for he he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please, please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. So again, Samuel's firm and in desperation, Saul tries to literally detain Samuel and tears his robe. Samuel uses the torn robe as a picture of Israel being torn from Saul. And this is where we learn that Saul is really lost. He's like, okay, okay, I've sinned, but come back with me anyway so I can save face with the elders. In Saul's mind, he's accepted that God has lost to him. But there's still the people, and the people love him. 
So he wants to keep it going because that's what he really cares about. That's why he let them keep the sheep in the first place. Saul wants to please the people. He would rather have their tangible adoration over the intangible favor of God. The torn robe symbolizing the tearing of Israel from Saul can also be compared to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they were torn from the garden, from the very presence of God, and from access to the tree of life that gave them eternal life. Similarly, when Saul disobeyed God, he was torn from Samuel and God's presence and his family line of kings that would lead to the promised Savior King who would give the world the opportunity for eternal life. Saul is being written out of the storyline of eternal life. Just like Adam and Eve were torn from the garden and the tree of life also called eternal life. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Samuel goes with Saul and worships, but then ruthlessly fulfills God's instructions himself by killing Agag. I couldn't help think of Phineas the killer priest. I mean, prophets and priests were not... Meek. Gentle they were not meek. Yeah, they were not meek. They were the keepers of the law and they were ruthless and zealous for God. And Samuel is zealous here. Samuel is almost also a bit grumpy at times, but Samuel loves too. And he was affectionately attached to Saul. And I love seeing this contrast in his personality. On the one hand, he kills Agag. He's going to obey God. But on the other hand, he's attached to Saul. Um, poor guy. He mourned for Saul. This the clueless boy that he anointed king was gone, replaced by a silly, selfish man who loved himself more than God, but Samuel still loves him. Saul does not know what he has lost in his friend Samuel, but he will soon feel the disturbing void. Saul has sealed his fate with his very own sin. Now, God has made his point clear about kings with this first example of a very bad king. The next king will be different. In fact, he is the most mentioned character in all of the Bible except for Jesus. His name appears over 900 times between the Old and the New Testament, more than Moses and more than Abraham. Four of those mentions are from one New Testament passage, which is a very concise summary of the journey that we have been on in the Old Testament. It tells the story from Egypt to the promised land and from the rule of judges to the rule of kings to that ultimate ruler, the Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, all in one passage. Saul was an example of a bad king. And David is the foreshadowing of the king. Listen to Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 16, when the apostle Luke records the words of the apostle Paul. Standing up. 
Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of the country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that they are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free of every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. If you've been with us through the beginning, you you have you, your your mind is probably like mine just do you not love how paul mentions every single person we have studied abraham moses samuel saul um uh, david to to then jesus he ties the whole thing together talking to the jews and the gentiles he's like trying to convince them guys this has been god's plan from the Old Testament to the New, God has provided a way back to eternal life. And it's just like us too, right? We're sitting here like, oh, I know that guy. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah. Oh, I know that yeah. history. Well, guess what? The Jews also knew that history yes. because they read it, just like you said, yes. they read it every year. Yes. And so Paul is calling the Jews to remember and explaining to the Gentiles, this is how the Old and the New Testament were together. David was a step in the plan. He's the king with a heart for the Lord. He's not perfect, but he is a foreshadowing of the king to come from his own family line and the tribe of Judah. 
just as it was promised way back to Jacob. Paul says, here's the good news. What God has promised, He has fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is set free. I just summarized Paul's exact words. We are on a journey in a book with 1,189 chapters. The story has many characters and spans thousands of years. But through it all, God has had but one purpose, one overarching storyline. Doesn't matter what book in this Bible we're in. It's to provide a way for our salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are on that journey. And next week, we take a monumental leap to the story of the King that will lead to the King that will provide the way. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.